You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of the lecture cycle by Rudolf Steiner, Rethinking Economics. This is Lecture 2, entitled The Fluid Nature of Economic Processes, given in Dornach on July 25, 1922. Particularly in the sphere of economics, the first concepts and ideas that we must develop cannot but be a little complicated, and for a quite objective reason. You must imagine the economic process, considered even as a world economy, as a thing of perpetual movement. As the blood flows through the human being, so do goods as merchandise or commodities flow by every conceivable channel through the whole economic body. And we must conceive as the most important thing within this economic process all that takes place in buying and selling. That at least is true of the economic life of today. Whatever else there may be, and we shall, of course, have to consider the most varied impulses contained in economic life, the subject of economics comes home to us directly when we have anything to buy or sell. In the last resort, the instinctive thinking of every naive person on economic matters culminates in the process taking place between buyer and seller. Fundamentally, this is what is important. Think about what counts when buying and selling are considered in the economic process. The thing that people care about is the price of a commodity, the price of the piece of goods in question. In the last resort, all the most important economic considerations really merge in this question of price. All the impulses and forces that are at work in economics culminate at length in price. We shall therefore first have to consider the problem of price, but it is by no means a simple problem. You need only consider the most simple case. At a given place, A, we have a certain commodity. At place A, it has a certain price. But suppose it is not bought there, but is transported to another place, B. Our endeavor will then be to add to the price whatever transport charges had to be paid from A to B. Thus the price changes in the process of circulation. There we have the simplest, if I may put it so, the most trite instance. Of course there are far more complex cases. Assume, for instance, that at a given date a house in a large town costs a certain amount. Fifteen years later the same house may perhaps cost six times as much. Let us not imagine that the main cause of the rise in price lies in the devaluation of money. On the contrary, let us assume that this is not the case. The rise in price may simply lie in the fact 
that in the meantime many other houses have been built around it. The other buildings now situated in its neighborhood greatly increase the value of the house. Of course, there may be ten or fifteen other circumstances accounting for the rise in price. In reality, we are never in a position to apply some general statement to the specific case, to say, for instance, that the price of houses or ironware or grains can be explicitly determined at a given place from any particular condition. To begin with, we can say little more than that we must observe how the price fluctuates with place and time. Then perhaps we can trace some of the conditions through which at a given place a given price actually emerges as it does. But there can be no such thing as a general definition stating how the price of a thing is composed. That is an impossibility. Again and again one is astonished to find price discussed in the commonly found works on economics as though it were possible to define it. We simply cannot define it, for a price is always concrete and specific. Precisely in economic matters, it is impossible to get anywhere near the realities with definitions. I once witnessed the following case. In a certain district where land is comparatively cheap, there is an organization with a more or less famous man in its midst. The organization buys up all the cheap plots of land and prevails upon the famous man to build himself a house there. Then the plots of land are offered for sale. They can be offered at a considerably higher price than the price at which they were bought, for the simple reason that the famous man has been persuaded to build himself a house there. Such instances will show you how indeterminate are the conditions on which the price of a thing depends in the economic process. Of course, you may say, such developments must be counteracted. Land reformers and people with similar aims try to resist these things. Through various regulations, they desire to establish a kind of just price for everything. Of course, one can do so, but economically considered, the price is not changed thereby. In the above instance, for example, when the plots of land are sold at a higher price, one can take the money away again, in the form of a high property tax. Then the state will pocket the difference. People have not grasped this reality. In reality, the original price has increased because of the tax. You can resort to regulations, but they will only obscure the issue. The price will still be what it would have been without them. You only bring about a redistribution. And it is no true economic thinking to say that the land has not increased in price during the last ten years simply because you have obscured the matter by regulations. Economics must stand firmly on a basis of reality. In economics we can speak only of the conditions existing at a given time and at the actual place to which we are referring. Those who desire the progress of humanity will come to the conclusion that things can be different. To begin with, however, things must be observed in their immediate reality 
at the particular moment. From all this you will see how impossible it is to approach such a thing as price, a most important concept in economics, by seeking to grasp it with a sharply defined idea. We can make no progress in economic theory by this means. Quite other ways must be adopted. We must observe the economic process itself. Yet the problem of price is the most important and all our efforts must be directed to it. We must observe the economic process and try, as it were, to catch the point where, at any given place and time, the actual price of a given thing results from all the underlying economic causes. Now, if you follow ordinary economic doctrines, you will generally find three factors mentioned, three factors, through the interplay of which the whole economic process is supposed to take its course. They are nature, labor, and capital. Footnote. Where Steiner uses the term nature as an economic category, in classical economics this is usually referred to as land. End of footnote. It is true that we can say, to begin with, that tracing the economic process we find what comes from nature, what is achieved by human labor, and what is derived from or directed by means of capital. But if we take nature, labor, and capital simply side by side in this way, we shall not grasp the economic process in a living way. On the contrary, we shall be led to many one-sided points of view, a fact to which the history of economic theory bears eloquent witness. Some say that all value is inherent in nature and that no special value is added to the substance of natural objects by human labor. Others believe that all true economic value is really impressed on a piece of goods, on a commodity, by the labor that, as they sometimes say, is crystallized in the commodity. Or again, the moment you place capital and labor side by side, you will find people saying, on the one hand, in reality it is capital that alone makes labor possible, and the wages of labor are paid out of the accumulated capital. On the other side it is said, no, the only thing that produces real value is labor, and all that capital obtains for itself is the surplus value resulting from the yield of labor. The fact is that considering things from the one point of view, the one is right. Considering them from the other point of view, the other is right. Over against the reality, such ways of thinking remind one of many a method in bookkeeping. Put the item here, and this will be the result. Put it there, and that will be the result. One can speak with strong apparent reasons of surplus value, saying that this is deducted from the wages of labor and appropriated by the capitalists to themselves. But one can say with equally good reasons that in the whole connection of economic life everything is due in the first place to the capitalists who can pay their workers only from what they have available for the wages of labor. For both of these points of view there are very good and very bad reasons. In fact, none of these ways of thinking comes near to the reality of economics.
though excellent as a basis for agitations, they are of no importance in a serious economic science. Quite other foundations must be found if we would hope for progress in economic life. Up to a certain point, of course, all these systems have their justification. Adam Smith, for instance, sees the real, original, value-forming factor in the work or labor that is expended on things. Here again, excellent reasons can be brought forward in support of this view. Such a man as Adam Smith certainly did not think in a stupid or nonsensical way. Here again, nevertheless, there is the underlying idea of taking hold of something static and giving it a definition, whereas in the real economic process things are in perpetual movement. It is relatively simple to form concepts of the phenomena of nature, even the most complicated, as compared with the ideas that we require for a science of economics. Infinitely more complicated, variable, and unstable are the phenomena in economics than in nature, more fluctuating, less capable of being grasped with any defined or hard and fast concepts. In effect, an altogether different method must be adopted. You will find this method difficult only in the beginning, but as a result of it you will presently see the only real and possible foundation for a science of economics can be discovered. To begin with, we may say that to this economic process, which we must now consider, three things contribute, nature, labor, and, parenthesis, thinking at first of the purely external economic aspect, close parenthesis, capital. So, at first, let us consider the middle one of these three, human labor. Let us try to form a conception of it by going down, as I indicated yesterday, into the sphere of animal life. Let us observe, instead of the economy of peoples, the economy of sparrows, the economy of swallows. Here, you see at once, nature is the basis of economy. True, even the sparrow has to do a kind of work, at the very least it must hop around to find its food. Sometimes it has to hop around a very great deal in the course of the day to find what it requires. The swallow building its nest also has to do a kind of work, and again it has much to do to build it. Nevertheless, in the true economic sense, we cannot call this work. We cannot call it labor. We shall make no progress in economic ideas if we call this labor. If we observe more closely, we shall have to admit that the sparrow and the swallow are organized precisely in such a way as to do the very things, fulfill the very functions which they fulfill in finding their food, and so forth. They simply could not be healthy if they had no opportunity to move around in this way. It is part and parcel of their organization. It belongs to them no less than their legs and wings. In seeking to build up economic concepts, we can therefore leave out of account what we might here call a mere apparent labor, a semblance of labor. In such cases, nature is taken just as she is, and the single creature, merely to satisfy its own needs, 
or those of its nearest kin, carries out the corresponding semblance of labor. If, however, we wish to determine what is value in the true economic sense, we must disregard this apparent labor. Thus it is a matter, first of all, of approaching a true concept of economic value. Consider the animal economy once more. There we may say that nature alone is the value-forming factor. If we now ascend to the human being, that is, to economy, it is true that we still have, from the side of nature, the same starting point of, quotes, nature value. The moment human beings no longer provide merely for themselves or for their nearest kindred, however, but for one another, human labor, properly so called, comes into consideration. Indeed, the moment we no longer use nature's products just for ourselves, but we stand in some relation to other human beings and trade goods with them, what we then do becomes, in relation to nature, labor. Here we arrive at the one aspect of value in economy. It arises in this way. Human labor is expended on the products of nature, and we have before us, in economic circulation, products of nature transformed by human labor. It is only here that a true economic value first arises. As long as the product is untouched, at a place where it is found in nature, it has no other value than it has, for instance, for the animals. But the moment you take the very first steps to put the product of nature into the process of economic circulation, the transformed nature product begins to have economic value. We may therefore characterize this economic value as follows. An economic value, seen from this one aspect, is a product of nature transformed by human labor. Whether the human labor consists in digging or chopping or merely moving a product of nature from one place to another is irrelevant. If we are seeking the determination of value in general, then we must simply say, one value-forming factor is that of human labor, transforming a product of nature so as to pass it into the economic process of circulation. If you consider this, you will see at once how very fluctuating is the value of, of a piece of goods circulating in the economic life. For labor is something always present, and is continuously expended on the goods. You cannot really say what value is. You can say only that value arises in a given place and at a given time, inasmuch as human labor transforms some products of nature. That is where value emerges. To begin with, we cannot and do not want to try to define value, but want to simply point out the place where it appears. I will present this diagrammatically. Here on the left side of the drawing we have nature, as it were, in the background. And there's a little uh, column, nature labor, with an arrow through it that hits value, and then angles off from there to the word price. On the right side is again a column where it says labor and spirit, and in parentheses, or human intelligence mind, and an arrow goes through that, you get value, which then angles off to the same word price. Sorry for that. Human labor 
approaches nature. What then becomes visible, appearing, as it were, through the interplay of nature and human labor, is one aspect of economic value. It is by no means a faulty image if, for instance, we look at a black surface or at anything black through a bright medium and see it as blue. According to whether the luminous medium is thick or thin, we will see various shades of blue. According to how we shift it, its density will vary, it is continuously fluctuating. So it is with value in the economic life. It is really none other than the appearance of nature through human labor. That too is always fluctuating. To begin with, we are gaining a few abstract indications, and little more. But these will give us our bearings during the next few days, and help us to reach more concrete concepts. After all, you are accustomed to this, for in all sciences one begins with what is the simplest. You see, labor as such has no purpose at all in economics. A man may chop wood, or he may get onto a treadmill. The man on the treadmill may be doing just as much work as the one who chops wood. To consider labor as Marx did when he said that we should look for its equivalent in the amount that is consumed in the human organism by the labor is colossal nonsense. The same amount is consumed whether someone chops wood or dances about on this machine. What happens in the human being is not the point in economics. We have already seen how the subject of economics borders on uneconomic matters. Speaking purely economically, it is quite unjustifiable to point to the fact that labor uses up the human being's forces. I mean, it is unjustifiable in this connection where, to begin with, we wish to establish a concept of labor in the sense of economics. Indirectly, it is of great significance for on the other side the needs of people have to be cared for. But Marx's way of thinking at this point is a colossal nonsense. What do we need to take hold of labor in the economic process? It is necessary to begin with to disregard the human being and to observe how labor enters into the economic process. The labor on the treadmill does not enter into it at all. It simply adheres to the man himself. The chopping of wood, on the other hand, does enter the economic process. The one thing that matters is how labor enters the economic process. It is a matter of the fact, for everything being considered, that everywhere nature is changed by human labor. And only insofar as nature is transformed by human labor do we create real economic values from this one side. If, for instance, we find it necessary for our physical health, having worked upon nature in some way, to dance a little or to do eurythmy in the intervals, all this may, of course, be judged from another standpoint, but what we do in the intervals cannot be described as work or labor in the economic sense, nor can it be regarded as in any way a factor creating economic values. Seen from another side, it may well be creating values, but we must first get our concepts pure and clear concerning economic values as such.
Now there is an altogether different possibility for economic value to arise. It is that we turn our attention to labor as such, and we take labor as the given thing. To begin with, as you have seen just now, this labor, economically speaking, is something totally neutral and irrelevant. Yet, it becomes an economic value-creating factor the moment we let it be directed by human intelligence, the human mind or spirit. I must now speak in a somewhat different sense from before. Even in the most extreme cases, you can imagine something that would otherwise not be labor at all being transformed into real labor by human intelligence. If it occurs to a man in order to lose weight to set up the apparatus that we spoke of in his bedroom and practice on it, there will be no economic value in it. If somebody winds a rope around it, however, and uses it to drive some machine, the moment this is done, what would not otherwise be labor at all, in the economic sense, receives value through spirit. The fellow on the treadmill will incidentally lose weight just the same, but the essential point is that through spirit, by intelligence, reflection, perhaps even speculation, labor is given a certain direction and the various units of labor are brought into certain mutual relations. We may say that here we have the second aspect of the value-forming factors in economics. Here labor stands in the background, and in the foreground stands spirit, which directs the labor. Labor shines through spirit or human intelligence, and this creates once more economic value. As you will soon see, these two aspects are present everywhere. Having shown in this diagram how an economic value emerges when we have nature appearing through labor, and this was on the left side of the diagram, if we now wish to represent diagrammatically what was just explained, we shall have to put labor in the background and in the front of its spirit, which gives it a certain modification. These are the two essential poles of the economic process. There are indeed no other ways in which economic values are created. Either nature is modified by labor or labor is modified by spirit, human intelligence or mind. The outer expression of spirit in this connection is in the manifold formations of capital. Economically, spirit must be looked for in the configurations of capital. These, at any rate, are its outward expression. We shall realize the facts more clearly when we come to consider capital as such, and then capital as a monetary medium. So you see, there can be no question of arriving at a definition of economic value. Once more, you need only consider on how many circumstances, on the cleverness or stupidity of how many different people, the modification of labor by the spirit in any given instance will depend. There is every kind of fluctuating condition. Nevertheless, this fact will always be in evidence. The value-creating factors in the economic process will always be found at these two opposite poles. Suppose now we find ourselves at any given point within the economic process. The economic process takes its course in the activities 
of buying and selling. Buying and selling are essentially an exchange of values. There is in fact no other exchange than that of values. Properly speaking, it is wrong to speak of an exchange of goods. The, in quotes, goods that play a part in the economic process, whether they appear as modified products of nature or modified labor, are always values. It is always the values that are exchanged. Whenever a process of buying and selling takes place, values are exchanged. Now what is it that emerges in the economic process when value and value, as it were, impinge on one another in the process of exchange? It is price. Wherever price emerges, it is always through the impact of value on value in the economic process. For this reason you cannot think truly about price if you have in mind the exchange of mere goods. If you buy an apple for a penny, you may say that you are exchanging one piece of goods for another, the apple for the penny. But you will make no progress in economic thinking along these lines. The apple has been picked somewhere and then transported, and it may well be that various other things have been done around it. All this is labor that has modified it. What you are dealing with is not an apple, but a product of nature transformed by human labor, representing an economic value. In economics, we must always take our start from values. Similarly, the penny represents not a piece of goods, but a value, since after all, parenthesis, or so at any rate we must suppose, close parenthesis, the penny is but the sign for the fact that there is present in the man who buys the apple another value that he exchanges for it. Today I am anxious for you to get a clear insight into the fact that in economics we must not speak of goods but of values as what is elementary. It is wrong to try to consider price in any other way than by envisaging the interplay of values. Value set against value gives you price. If, as we saw, value itself is a fluctuating thing, incapable of definition, may we not say that when you exchange value for value, price, which arises in the process of exchange, is a fluctuating thing raised to the second power? From all this you may see how futile it is to try to take hold of values and prices with the idea of finding a firm and fixed ground in economics. It is still more futile if your object is to influence the economic process in practice. Something altogether different is needed, something that lies behind all these things. This can be seen from a very simple observation. Consider this for a moment. Nature appears to us through human labor. Suppose we obtain iron at a given place under extraordinarily difficult conditions. The value that is, a, that is thus produced through human labor is a modified object of nature. If at a different place iron is produced under far easier conditions, it may happen that an altogether different value will result. You see, therefore, that we cannot grasp the reality in the value itself. We must go behind the value. We must go back to what creates the value. Here alone can we gradually find our way to the more constant conditions on which we can exercise a certain influence.
The moment you have brought the value into economic circulation, you must let it fluctuate with the economic organism as a whole. Consider the the finer constitution of a blood cell. It is different in the head and in the heart and in the liver. You cannot say, We will now seek the true definition of blood. In the human organism, the most you can do is to consider what are the more favorable foods to consume in the one case and in the other. Likewise, there is no point in talking round and round about value and price. The important thing is to go back to the primary factors, back to what, if rightly formed, will actually bring forth the proper price. The proper price will then emerge of its own accord. In the study of economics, it is quite impossible to stop short at definitions of value and price. We must always go back to the real origins whence the economic process is nourished, on the one hand, and by which, on the other hand, it is regulated, nature on the one hand, spirit on the other. In all economic theories of modern times, this has been the difficulty. They have always tried, at the outset, to hold fast what is really fluctuating. As a result, those who can see through these things find themselves confronted not with wrong definitions. Scarcely any of them are wrong. They are generally quite right. Though it is true that one must indeed miss the mark to say that the amount of labor corresponds to what has been expended and has to be restored in the human body, that it corresponds therefore to the expenditure of substance, such a statement is really a blunder one has really failed to see the simplest things. No, the point is that even those of considerable insight have stumbled again and again over this obstacle in developing their theory of economics. They have tried to observe things that are always in a state of flux, as if they were at rest. For the objects of nature one can and must often do so, In nature it suffices to observe the state of rest in a quite different way. All we have come to do in the natural science of today is excuse me, all we have come to do in the natural science of today to observe a state of movement is to regard the movement as though it were composed of a multitude of tiny states of rest and jump from one to the other. For when we integrate we regard even movement as if it were composed of states of rest. On the model of such a science, however, we cannot study the economic process. This, therefore, must be said. The first thing needed in grappling with the science of economics is to consider how, on the one hand, value appears because nature is transformed by human labor, nature is seen through human labor, while, on the other hand, value appears because labor is seen through spirit. These two origins of value are the real polar opposites. They differ as in the spectrum. The one pole, the luminous or yellow pole, differs from the other, the blue or violet pole. You may well hold fast this image. As in the spectrum the warm colors appear on the one side, so on this side there appears the nature value that will show itself more in the formation of rents. Footnote. Rent is meant here in the strict economic sense of the value that emerges from land. Confusingly, however, rent has two different meanings for economists. Contract rent 
designates the income from hiring out land or other durable goods. Economic rent is used to define one aspect of the price of goods and services. Generally, it designates the difference between the raw costs of everything needed to produce the goods or service and the price. It is a measure of market power. Economic rent is determined for each of the factors of production used to produce the goods or service. Usually economic rent is due to some exclusivity. For example, for labor, it could be due to celebrity or skill. For example, higher pay for skilled workers in a region where there is scarcity of such skilled workers, or a sports star who is paid $50,000 per week when he would perform for $10,000. For goods, it may be due to the power of a, pa- a patent. For real estate, it may be due to a favorable location. By contrast, if there is no exclusivity and there is perfect competition, there are no economic rents as competition drives prices down to their floor. Economic rent was developed by the economist David Ricardo, 1722-1823. He defined rent as, quote, the difference between the produce obtained by the employment of two equal quantities of capital and labor. The end of footnote. On this side, we perceive nature transformed by labor. On the other side, there appear to us instead those values that are translated into capital. Here we see labor transformed by spirit. Then indeed price can arise, inasmuch as values of the one pole impinge on values of the other. Or again, the several values within the one pole come into mutual interaction. The point is that wherever it is a question of price formation, there will be a mutual interaction of value and value. We must therefore disregard everything to do with the substances and materials themselves. We must look away from all this and begin by seeing how values are formed on the one side and on the other. Then we shall be able to press forward to the problem of price. The end of Lecture 2